Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about venture capital, where investors and founders alike can learn how VCs make decisions and reach conviction. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Trey Vasallo joins us today from the Bay Area. She is co-founder and managing director at Defy Partners. She also co-hosts Equity Summit, an annual event that brings together $2 trillion of AUM for relationship building and authentic conversation between leading LPs and women GPs. Prior to Defy, Trey was a GP at Kleiner Perkins, and before that, co-founded Good Technology. Across her investing career, she's invested in companies including Nest, Dropcam, Opower, Eero, Molecule, Verse, Elevate Security, and Arivo. Trey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so that was kind of a mouthful. Can you tell us your own personal story and background to VC? Uh, uh, sure. No, this is actually kind of a fun story because I, I never had any plan of being in venture. In fact, I had no idea what venture even was. I grew up in rural Minnesota, You know, kind of knew that I liked problem solving, knew that I wanted to get out. And I applied and fortunately got into Stanford and arrived, you know, sight unseen onto campus thinking that, man, I, I sure won the lottery because this place is amazing. Um, and, you know, Stanford's an incredible place. Um, I opted to study mechanical engineering because for me, it was all about creative problem solving. And I got exposed to, um, you know, amazing companies like IDEO, which I ended up working at coming straight out of Stanford. and. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I was able to take, uh, you know, my robotics kind of focus. I did a bachelor's and a master's. And, you know, I knew a lot of people went straight into business um, and kind of used that as sort of the liberal arts, so to speak, of, of you know, today. And I kind of wanted to scratch that itch and actually understand what it meant to ship and build a product. Um, and so I was fortunate that I got to, to meet these incredible IDEO folks and, at the time, and this was back in the 90s, you know, they were sort of the place for building breakthrough products, consumer products. And so while there, you know, I got to work on a number of cool um, and inspiring things like, um, you know, I, I got to work for BMW, I got to go to Munich. Um, but the coolest thing and most transformative for me was this little company called Palm Computing. It was the first startup that I'd ever run into. And it was the first company that had a female CEO, Donna Dubinsky. And she just kind of blew my mind. She was so inspiring. And I realized that, you know, while I loved helping innovate on products and, and I got to help design and ship the Palm 5, which was incredibly cool and iconic, the ability to build a company from scratch, sort of up-leveling it from product to company to me sort of became that next really cool thing that I wanted to learn how to do. And, um, and that inspired me to go apply to business school. Uh, at the time, that kind of felt like the only way to break out and, and see what this entrepreneurship thing was all about. 
And, uh, you know, I, I got lucky and Stanford let me back in. And so I went, I went down the street and, um, my whole goal was to understand the language of business and hopefully figure out how to become an entrepreneur. And, you know, I was super lucky in that one of the other things I was working on was coming out of my shell. You know, I was the stereotypical nerdy, um, kind of quiet engineer. And I knew that that wasn't going to fly um, kind of in the business world. And so one day on campus, I saw John Doerr getting a newspaper. And oh. I was like, oh my God, here is like the iconic tech figure. I have to go talk to this guy. And so I mustered up every ounce of courage that I had. And I walked over and I'm, you know, figuring out my brain what to ask him, you know, as I'm walking over. And, um, you know, and I basically just said, you know, it's so exciting to meet you. I, I'm, you know, I just finished shipping, helping ship this incredibly iconic product, the Palm 5. Um, and turns out, you know, he had backed Donna. He knew this team well. So we had an immediate connection. And, um, and I asked him, I said, hey, I really want to build on that experience, but I want to do it in an entrepreneurial way. Do you know of any groups of people working on something that, um, you know, is sort of focused on taking these handhelds and, and actually connecting them to the internet? And, you know, he said, yeah, actually I do. Um, there's, there's a team that's thinking about starting a company. Let me connect you. And, um, and it was sort of that, you know, the stars aligned for me. And fortunately, you know, John followed up. I met with this team that was, um, you know, about to start a company. And I became the third co-founder of Good Technology, which, I, you know, I co-founded in March of 2000 in my senior, not in my second year of business school. Um, and right before the, the great crash there. And, um, you know, it was an awesome experience that basically got me um, to have a front row seat to what it was like to start a company, build a company, ship a product. Um, and, and, you know, that run was fantastic. We ended up selling good to, uh, to Motorola for, you know, $500 million. And, you know, we weathered the storm. It was a rocky one, but I learned a ton. And coming out of that, I remember I had another meeting with John and that there's a theme here. You know, he was like, well, what are you going to do next, Trey? And, and I said, you know, I don't know, but I'm sure I'd figure it out if I were working with you. And I sort of just kind of talked my way into an entrepreneur in residence <laughs> role, awesome. uh, which was kind of funny. And, um, and so my initial, um, you know, role at Kleiner was, had nothing to do with investing. It had everything to do with, I love being an entrepreneur. I love building things. I just need a platform to figure out what was next. And it was tough. It was 2002 when I was doing this. And so the, um, you know, the market wasn't great. And I also had a nine month old baby. And so that lasted for a little while. And, and then finally, I was like, you know, I, I have to support my family. Um, I had a husband in business school at the time. And so I, I went and got a job offer from Apple uh, to work on the iPod and went back to the KP folks and said, you know, I have to get a real job. So I'm going I'm to go work um, for Apple. And, and they said, actually, we'd love it if you stayed. Um, you know, we think you could really help us out. And, and so that was my entry into the business, which was totally right place, right time, and me kind of being open-minded and, and of the mind that, let's give this a try. Because I love building and problem solving, but I also love, you know, meeting and talking with all these amazing entrepreneurs that this firm gets to the chance to see. And so it ended up being a, just an incredible, incredible opportunity. That's amazing. 
When did John uh, leave the firm or retire? Oh, goodness. You know, I, I haven't, obviously, I left Kleiner in 2014. And so I know that he transitioned to chairman kind of post oh, me okay. leaving. So. Got it. Got it. Okay. So you had many years then uh, learning from him or working I, with him. I did. So, yeah, I mean, I was at Kleiner for 11 years. And so I always say that, you know, it was an incredible experience. I got to join the firm in 2003. This is pre-Google going public. I think if I remember right, John was on the board of both Google and Amazon, which is kind of crazy to think that that's the case. Um, and we had these, you know, this amazing group of partners around the table that were all very different. Um, Brooke Byers is, you know, has an incredible track record and experience in life science. Kevin Compton, who I adore and consider a mentor, um, you know, did Citrix and, you know, a bunch of other, you know, really interesting companies. Vinode, um, Ted Schlein, who I got to work with on security a fair amount. Um, they all were very different and they were all very big thinkers. And, and the firm was, you know, at the top of their, um, you know, their brand at the time. And so it really was a phenomenal time to sort of see the inner workings and to be able to learn from some really, you know, inspiring people. Well, I want to talk about Defy. Um, I feel like the book that I I most often recommend there's there's a handful, but the book I most often recommend to entrepreneurs is Measure What Matters by John Doerr. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any like fun stories or any like key lessons learned in your time there from him? Uh, well, there's so many, and, and I do think John has had an obsession with objectives and key results. You know, from the moment I got there, and 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 I do think that you know communication and alignment around communication is is everything and its core, and it is something that you know as I've grown in my career, how you coach. CEOs into building their executive teams, you know, that is the foundation. So um, I absolutely, you know, couldn't agree with that more. Um, I think the other thing that that John really instilled in, in me, and you could see it, is that he really does an amazing job of connecting with entrepreneurs and listening and hearing them and kind of pulling out the right insights and and synthesizing things in a way that's incredibly inspiring, but also very, you know, he could get the to the heart of what the key issues were, you know, you wouldn't get distracted by the minutia. It was, this is the one thing that's going to kill you. How do we figure out how to solve this problem? And so I really appreciated that insight as well as, you know, an, an acknowledgement that um, we're a service industry, um, you know, being a venture capitalist, it we're in service to the entrepreneur. And so there is a very much a reverence to the fact that they're the folks who are doing all the hard work. You know, it wasn't about deals. It was about, this is someone's hopes and dreams. This is an investment and a partnership. And I always really took that with me as something that was super important. That's amazing. So uh, tell us a little bit about Defy. So you you left Kleiner, you launched yeah. Defy, you know, uh, tell us that that story. Yeah, well, so I left Kleiner in 2014, and and the firm was really changing and getting big, and 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 taking on you know a lot more capital, and and it was just really clear that it was it was time for me to go and and be more entrepreneurial again. And so the um, you know the the thing that became obvious to me was that early stage entrepreneurs would go out to fundraise and they would hear, you're too early, you're too early from what were supposed to be venture capital firms. Um, but what was happening is these bigger firms like Kleiner was, were just raising more and more money. And it became easier for me to write $20 million checks than $5 million checks. And it also turns out that the part that I love 
Um, and you know, now my partner, Neil Sakara loves, it was this early messy stage of building these businesses of, um, you know, figuring out and, and really dialing in product market fit so that you can step on the gas and scale up on go to market. And, um, and so that's where as a product person and someone who shipped products, I love that part of the journey and that uncertainty. And so, um, so leaving KP, uh, you know, was obviously a huge jump for me. And, um, and also I would say a really grounding one because it was, it was good for me to like have to be stripped of what was this incredible brand, the big pocketbook and, and figure out, okay, why do people want to work with me? What is my value? And, um, and it was interesting because when I left, I found myself actually busier than ever. And that, because I'd have friends reaching out, hey, Trey, we want your help on this. We need your experience on this. And so I found that incredibly confidence building that, okay, it isn't just the brand or the money that I actually have some unique skills to bring. And that gave me then the confidence to seek out a partner um, and actually go be an entrepreneur again and build a firm that allowed me to continue what I love doing, which is early stage investing. And so our thesis at Defy is really building, um, you know, a, a full a full venture firm philosophy. Meaning, you know, we can we write checks, we reserve, we get on boards, but we're focused on the early stage. So, um, you know, we want to get in at these messy early stages, not just growth, but really helping you formalize management teams, build out your board, figure out how to build and and you know communicate on e teams, setting up your OKRs, um, and then dealing with all of the the fumbles that you're going to have on dialing in that product market fit. So, so that was kind of the basic thesis. We um, closed fund one um, in 2017 of 151 million um, and then closed fund two at 262 million last year. Um, Neil and I have since added on um, a third partner, Brian Rothenberg, who, um, who's an operator. Um, Neil spent 11 years general catalyst while I spent 11 years at Kleiner. And so while we both had a lot of investing experience, our operating skills and networks were frankly, you know, getting weaker. And so we wanted to bring in someone who had, you know, relevant recent operating experience. And, and Brian um, was uh, initially hired as the head of growth at Eventbrite when it was a small private company and then was there leading marketing all the way up through IPO. And so he brings a wealth of experience on things like customer acquisition and viral growth loops and you know all the ins and outs of how you scale uh, customer acquisition in, in these, you know, this era where things are only getting more complex. Good, good. So, um, so back on the thesis, you know, what what is the check size, and how do you define early stage? Is that is that pre A? Is that A? Is that A and B? Yeah, no. So early stage means a lot of different things. Um, we will invest super early, um, all the way through to the occasional B. I would say our sweet spot tends to be kind of that three to five million. Um, but sometimes we'll stretch a little higher and sometimes we'll, we'll stretch a little lower. Um, you know, I think in the end, uh, we do care about concentration. So one thing we aren't is a seed fund that sprinkles a lot of checks. Um, ultimately we want to have a handful of companies that we spend a lot of time on. And so for that, you know, we're going to own 15 to 25% of these companies for the most part and, and, and really collaborate with the entrepreneurs and building those businesses, um, another important thing, and this was a key part of our thesis, is that when we looked at 
um, other firms that looked kind of like us, whether it's Wing or Costa Noah um, or Unusual, a lot of them started with a very specific thesis around enterprise, for example. And, you know, both of us had had experience in investing in, you know, consumer and media and kind of across the board when you look at our histories. And so we actually went into this saying, no, you know, we're going to be a generalist firm. Um, and we actually think there are a lot of advantages to being able to understand, you know, how you build, you know, the right kind of viral loops and consumer, because a lot of that actually applies to how you do, um, you know, enterprise investing sure. and, you know, the best enterprise, you know, kind of back ends, you know, how you're building out you know, key infrastructure for those companies also applies to, to consumer. And so this notion that somehow there's this stark line between the two, um, you know, we think that that line is blurring. And, and so when you look at some of the companies in our portfolio, you do see that there are, are definitely companies that, um, you know, cross, uh, cross, blend those lines um, and, you know, in places where I think there are, um, you know, where we really stand out because we, we can understand a media company and yet we can also understand, you know, one of our last in investments was a robotics company. Um, and our network is set up to be able to, to help us do that. What, what would you say is the defining thing about the firm that may be most different or most differentiated from, you know, the crowd that you just mentioned? Yeah, well, I'd say um, one thing is, you know, just the maniacal focus on the early stage. So, you know, we both came from really great firms that, you know, are multi-stage firms. And um, uh, part of the thesis is that we want to make it really easy for entrepreneurs to know what they're getting. When they come to us, you know, they're not, we're not balancing looking at them versus writing a 20 or $50 million check into another company. All we're doing is looking at the early stage. And, and, and we're also not going to say, hey, we'll pass this time, but maybe we'll invest later, which was another, I think, thing that we see with a lot of these multi-stage firms. We have to make that hard decision up front. Um, and so I, I do think that is, you know, something that was really important to us. So keeping the firm kind of focused and right-sized, right? So, you know, uh, if you have a billion dollars, you're going to want to put that money to work and you can't necessarily invest that, you know, $4 million at a time. So really constructing the firm in a way where we're incentivized to continue to focus on this early stage um, is important. And, and then the other key is that, you know, how we build out the team really matters. And, and, you know, when you're in a big multi-stage firm, you can have a lot of people. We're trying to figure out how to build a small and mighty and highly leveraged team. And, and I'd say a good example of one of the things that we do to try to augment the fact that we are, you know, it's, it's just a handful of us um, around the table is that we do, I would say, sort of some creative things to, um, you know, make our uh, ecosystem also aligned with us. So one program that I'm particularly proud of uh, is called our SAGE program. And the idea on this, that you know, a lot of firms have venture partners, and, and these are people who are affiliated with the firms who, you know, kind of source investments and may sit on boards. And um, what we were noticing is that, you know, venture partners, it can be really positive, but one of the best parts of venture partners is their domain expertise. But the problem is, as soon as you pull them out of being CEOs or pull them out of their domains, that expertise starts to age. And so... 
we we basically came up with a clever way of saying, no, we want you to continue being CEOs of the amazing companies that you're working on, you know, and continue to be solving problems within your industry. But we also want to be able to, um, you know, incentivize you when you see something that could be a fit for us to help us make those investments. And so, you know, so our sages are kind of a twist on venture partner where they still have full-time jobs as CEOs, doing what they're doing, but they're in the flow of really interesting companies and occasionally pick off a few things where they work with us. And and in it, right now we have four sages. Um, and just to give you an example of, of the kinds of people they are, you know, one of our sages who we've been working with for a while is Brian Lee. And, and Brian, um, you know, was the CEO of the Honest Company. Um, Neil had worked with him for a long time, was on his board. And Brian has a small seed fund in LA. He's a prolific investor, multi-time entrepreneur and founder. And, um, and he's super, super active as, as an entrepreneur and CEO. And so um, by having him as a sage, uh, you know, we have alignment with an incredible person who has, you know, amazing domain expertise who, who we can tap into, um, but he's actively continuing to build that expertise. I like that word sage. We we have one venture partner at the firm here, and we just refer to him as the most interesting man in the world. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good too. Yeah, you know, yeah, we picked we picked our words carefully, and and I, I like to say too. I mean, we picked Defy for a reason, um, and and it's because you know being an entrepreneur is so hard. It's like you're constantly coming up against roadblocks, and you're doing things that people tell you you shouldn't be doing or couldn't be doing, and so it is kind of this act of defiance, and and it's one that I personally resonate with a lot just because, you know, being a woman in technology and, and kind of having done the things I've done, I've, I've sort of felt like I've had to be defiant over the years to get to where I am. And so part of that was trying to, you know, capture that in our brand um, and have that, you know, look, we hear you entrepreneurs. We want to help you go out there, defy and win. Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, I think I come I came across some content, an article that talked about, you know, looking outside of San Francisco for investments. Is that a mm-hmm. part of what you do? And, you know, how are you seeing, you know, right now, a lot of <laughs> the situation with the pandemic, of course, is yeah. exacerbated, you know, what's happening in San Francisco. I'm getting pinged by friends in <laughs> SF that are, you know, trying to sublet their places and everyone's kind of trying to get out and... Honestly, I don't think that's just unique to SF. I think New York and, and Chicago and LA yeah. are going through similar things. But yeah, you know, talk a bit about um, investing in and out of San Francisco and kind of the the trends that you're observing. Yeah, sure. So, you know, um, San Francisco is just really getting quite frenzied. And, you know, as we are a smaller, newer venture fund, you know, if, if what we did was chase chi- shiny objects in San Francisco, you know, we're going we're gonna to be, you know, paying super high prices on things that other people have passed on. It's just, there's so many reasons why San Francisco um, can be problematic. And, and kind of part of our philosophy is we want to back we just want to back incredibly authentic entrepreneurs who are solving big problems. And those entrepreneurs don't all live in San Francisco. And so we love the idea of backing these folks um, who still have access to great teams, um, you know, and understand how to hustle and work hard and, and, and execute in an entrepreneurial way. 
Um, but those people, you know, don't just live in the city. And so we have been very clear as a firm that we're happy to invest. In fact, we, we sort of say we've kind of got a West Coast focus. So we have companies in San Diego, uh, Carlsbad, LA, Seattle, um, Santa Barbara, um, and and now with COVID and what's going on with kind of the city right now, I do think this is a trend that's only going to be, you know, uh, furthered with the fact that it's just, it's hard to do business in the city. And I will say too, that leading up, this is pre-COVID, um, when, y- if you're a startup and you're trying to hire, you know, some tech people, it was really getting hard. And, and, you know, if I, I'm anecdotally thinking about the portfolio pre-COVID, but almost every company had a cluster of people who were not local. Everyone had already embraced remote teams at some level just because supply and demand was making it impossible to do it all in one location. I think what's happened with COVID is this has just massively accelerated the fact that, okay, we're all learning now how to work in, um, you know, in a collaborative online way. And as people are sort of escaping to places where we can live maybe in uh, with a little more distance between each other, I think that will further cement the fact that, you know, while San Francisco certainly has been a leader, there's no reason that it needs to stay that. Um, and so, you know, smart um, people who know how to build tech companies are, are now getting distributed to lots of corners. Um, and so hopefully, I think we are going to see a, a better distribution of, um, you know, companies that, that succeed. Now, we still need to start that, you know, the, that needs to play out. And, and part of the reason San Francisco is so powerful as an area is that success does beget success. So, you know, once a company has a success, those employees, you know, then at some point spin out and start new companies in that location. And so, you know, it's going to take a while to sort of see what happens. But, um, you know, I think we're optimistic that our strategy of not necessarily being 100% focused on San Francisco is it makes sense. Yeah. And your point around having these these other offices, um, even for R and D, I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm seeing that more and more with startups, startups that are in you know centers of influence in tech, New York, Boston, et cetera, that have a developer group in in an LCR, and the LCR yeah. could be you know abroad or it could be an LCR within the U.S. It's it's kind of in Colorado, for right. example. Yeah, right. no, no. In fact, at one of our portfolio companies you know, they didn't renew their lease. They just, they let it go because a, a big chunk of their engineering teams in Canada. And, um, and what they found was that, you know, when you have a big chunk of the team that's not in the office and there's a little bit of this have, have not culture and by kind of exploding everything and making everybody remote, it actually sort of leveled the playing field um, and actually improved productivity. And, and obviously, they, they spend a bunch of time really figuring out how to get people to connect in non-work ways and, and, and really gel as a team. But they're qu- actually quite optimistic. And, and I think we're going to see that across a handful of portfolio companies that don't go back to an office. Right, right. Good. You know, I want to talk about your founder experience a bit. Uh, you had your experience when you were, that was in 2000, I believe, right? Early 2000s. So after sort of the, uh, dot-com collapse and everything. And, and now we're going through during, yeah, during, (laughs) During. yeah. Like, I'm I'm sure you took some lessons out of that. Are those things that you're, you're helping founders with now that we're going through the current crisis? 
For sure. I mean, um, actually, both Neil and I like to say, you know, we've seen several ups and downs. Not not only did we, you know, both live through the kind of crash of 2000, um, but we both actually were venture capitalists during 2008, um, you know, when we had that crisis. So we've had to kind of triage and mobilize. And, and you know, and part of our thesis, too, is a, is a small venture firm, you know, pre-COVID, we weren't... Um, investing a lot of money into companies that I always joke that we're using cash, you know, uh, cash as a moat, right? Like using gobs of cash to buy customers, right? Like our thesis and premise as a, as a smaller firm is investing into efficient growth. And, um, and so especially right now, you know, all of the training that we've had in, you know, from 2008 and previous around the first thing you do is make sure that you've got runway, um, you know, it was exactly what we leaned in on. And, um, you know, and then the other thing too, is that when you have these moments and you start to, if several of our portfolio companies went through this where they had to make some deep cuts, but in doing so, they actually unlocked incredible productivity. What they didn't realize was that, you know, they got cash, they got investment, they added people where they thought they needed it but they actually weren't scaling efficiently. And so in some ways, it's kind of interesting to see how, um, you know, a, a little bit of some steps back and, and, and bringing people back down to more of the basic, you know, here's the bare bones of what we need to move forward actually helps reset them, um, helps a renewed focus on product as well, I think, you know, in these times when, you know, maybe the buyers aren't there and the customers aren't calling, um, you know, there's a focus on, okay, well, how do we make the margins better? How do we make the product more self-serve? How can we emerge from this crisis better than when we went in? And, um, and so I think there's, there's a lot of conversations with our um, portfolio companies on those fronts. And frankly, I, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic on, on most of the portfolio and that I think they will emerge in much better, healthier shape. Um, you know, but it, it's, it's certainly, these are hard times to go through. You have experience investing in seed, Series A, in some cases, Series B. Uh, I'd imagine you see a, a variety of different capital efficiency scenarios, um, you know, uh, regardless of just raw progress and raw growth. Um, it's not just growth at any cost and any amount raised, right? Um, are there some guidelines or heuristics, rough heuristics that you guys use to kind of assess capital efficiency uh, with various startups? Um, you know, I would say some firms are very particular around, look, we want to see that you're at this, you know, LTV to CAC ratio and this CAC payback and, and they're very, very metrics driven. And I would say uh, we're, we're, we pay attention to those metrics, but we also know that you you can kind of manipulate numbers to say what you want them to say. Um, and so you really have to dive into a lot of the nuances. Um and and capital efficiency is one element that you know we like. We certainly love businesses where you know the cash cycles are great, they're paid up front, the margins are big. Um, but we also understand that there are businesses, you know, and I'm a person who's invested in a lot of hardware companies and, and just invested in a company like Arivo that's, uh, you know, robotics for manufacturing. Um, you can't look at that and go, that is the most efficient business model. But what you can look at is go, you know, you have to balance the fact that the industry that they're disrupting, um, you know, has a totally different kind of risk reward schedule. And so 
part of what we're doing as investors is building out a portfolio, a basket of different types of risk. And so we love SaaS risk. We, we love marketplace risks. We have a basket of, you know, we balance enterprise versus consumer. Um, and then we want some deeper tech risks as well. Whereas if those things really end up working, you know, the IP is really incredible. They could be, you know, in, you know, super um, effective on, on moving an industry forward. Um, and so, I would say, uh, you know, we're not a group that's looking for a, a cherry, you know, a, you know, the, a cookie cutter sort of set of metrics that define an area. It really, it kind of depends on the industry, the leader, all sorts of things. Right, right. And, you know, you mentioned before how you brought on um, another partner, you know, a, a, an operator that was closer sort of to the action, you know, as you got more experience in your investment career. I'm curious, you know, how do you, how do you find a way to approach these opportunities with fresh eyes, right? How yeah. do you try and keep this beginner's mindset? Because uh, I've noticed even myself, you know, as I've gotten further and further away from my my product and my entrepreneur roots, it's it's hard to kind of remember and go back to I that know. original mindset, right? It, re- it really is. And one of the things that's important to us as a firm is just approachability and authenticity. And if you can't, empathize or speak the language of what the entrepreneurs are going through, I I think it makes it a lot harder. And so, you know, um, fortunately, I I am kind of a tinkerer at heart. So um, one of the things I have tried to do over the years is, you know, like I I beta test a ton of things. I install everything myself. Um, You know, like I just set up a a fancy enterprise class Wi-Fi system at home and I insisted on doing the entire thing myself. So I had to debug all this stuff. And, and, um, you know, I I was also looking at a, a company that was sort of in the Shopify ecosystem. So I, you know, I set up a Shopify store and I tinkered around with it and I built a website <laughs> out. And, I, you know, and and I'm like, I think it's really important to have that intellectual curiosity and and it doesn't have to go super deep, right? Like, you know, I, I'm obviously not going to be running an e-commerce store anytime in the near future, but like understanding the flow and the steps and in those sorts of things, I do think are, are really important. And, you know, I'm also fortunate that I've got kids. And so like, I embrace the fact that, um, you know, when uh, uh, my daughter was, uh, you know, getting interested in robotics, like I said, hey, I'm going to coach the robotics team. And I was able to, again, flex my robotics muscle and get in there and help them debug and build out their platforms. And, and you know, it, it, that kind of stuff is, is really good at reminding you that, you know, yeah, there's a lot of complexity in here. And, uh, um, you know, it doesn't just happen with a snap of a finger. You know, let's let's talk a bit more about the founders that you're interacting with. Um, you know, it's the interaction has changed or the basic interaction has changed. You know, a lot of people are pitching over Zoom. Of course, there's been a lot of tips on that. But just, you know, more generally, what are some of the biggest mistakes that, that you observe founders making, you know, when they're pitching? Yeah, gosh, it's, it's so hard right now. And I, I do think that, you know, as an investor and I'm on Zooms all day long, everything just starts to blend together. So <laughs> yeah. I think it's, I think it's really important to try to be memorable and, you know, and don't forget people are, people are still wanting to engage. Right. So I, I do think just making those personal connections in the beginning and, you know, are important. Um, but the most important thing for me is the, the, like 
why you, why now story, which may not always come out in your deck, but this authentic story of what led you to this point that is causing you to build this company now and why is now the right time. And, and this, I always, I always say this is kind of the preamble to starting the slides where it gets a little more scripted. And I, and I always think that this is the point, this is the place where you get me on your side emotionally and I'm rooting for you and I'm connected with you. And, and it makes it so much easier for me to remember your story. And so I think that kind of personalization at the beginning is super important. And, um, and then the other thing that I think um, is, is, again, really important is a, a lot of people will go very deep into the technology and they'll explain it. And, and frankly, I'm a big fan of if you can demo it, start with your demo. Just go straight to here's what we do. And, and the reason I think that's so important is that, you know, I'm sitting here trying to visualize in my head what you do and how you look. And so I'm not necessarily hearing everything you're saying as I'm architecting this thing in my head. So if you can just start me off with, hey, here's what we do, then, then you've got me right there. It's sort of the, you know, the picture's worth a thousand words, a demo is worth a, you know, a billion. So um, you just, you get me straight to the point. And, and I also say too, that like, while I'm a product person and I, I, shipped and built products. And for me, kind of feeling and seeing like really helps me remember. I like to point out that most venture capitalists haven't done that. And so when you're explaining this to them, most people are really, they're not going to understand what you're saying very well. Um, you're living and breathing this every day. We're not, we're jumping from company to company. And so, you know, demo, demo, demo. And if you can't demo, do a mocked up demo, do a video, do something that gets that point across. And the corollary to that is, while the technology is important and relevant and why you can do it better, you have to be super, super clear on the value that you're providing to the end user. Um, and so making sure that that, you know, almost the sales pitch or the the customer experience, the user experience is really, really clear because, um, you know, uh, Silicon Valley has had a history of being too tech-centric, you know, build this great tech and people will come. Well, now tech is, is basically revolutionizing everything. And so what you need to prove to me is that you're solving a person's problem in the most elegant, efficient way possible. And so I need to sit in that chair for a moment and really experience that. And so I'd say that's the other really core thing that you need to get across to me when, when you're pitching. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. 
Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. What about, you know, building that relationship and ongoing engagement with investors? Any any thoughts there on how better to do that when there isn't an opportunity to meet in person? Yeah, well, I would say, um, you know, to the extent we are investing in entrepreneurs in the Bay Area, we are we are finding ways to do safe meetings outside. Um, and mm-hmm. when you are making a big decision, like, is this a partner that I want to have for the next however many years? Um, you got to spend time with them. And, and, I, and being in person, even if you're at distance outside, you know, with masks on, it's, it's actually really, really valuable to get that time together. So I would encourage um, folks to, to consider, um, you know, uh, finding safe ways to be able to, to spend that time. Um, we have certainly done other investments at a distance. Um, and, and I think it's, it, again, it comes down to communicating your goals and needs. And I think we're always very clear that, look, we're, we're here as a resource to the entrepreneur. We're not going to um, force something on you. If you need us, uh, you know, here's my phone number, text me when you need, you need me, um, I will be there. Um, if you want to talk in a weekly cadence, great. If you just want me kind of out of your way and as needed for a little while, totally fine. And so I think it is important to make sure have those conversations with your investor, get on the same page around what you want from them. And don't be shy about asking. The, the best entrepreneurs send me like, Trey, this is what I need from you. Um, and you know, and I got to follow up, I, I got to produce. Um, and I, and I think that is a really important, um, way to manage your board, your advisory board, uh, as a founder. Are you trying to meet with founders in person before making a commitment? If it's possible. And if people feel comfortable, um, doing it, you know, outside, um, again, in a safe way, um, I, I think it does give a whole additional level of insight. Um, Pre-COVID, actually, one of the things that was really important to, to us at Defy was to actually go to their office. So we, in fact, we would joke that our partner meeting is at your office. We don't want you to come to Defy because we're, we're going to get the scripted you know, song and dance, I actually want to see you in your environment. People let down their guard. You can see how they're interacting with the entire team. And um, I think there's a lot of valuable, you know, information that comes out of that. And so, um, you know, that getting, getting to people's offices, not something we can do right now, but, you know, definitely kind of pre-COVID times was a key part of, of the vetting process, at least for us. You know, I, I, I hesitate to ask this because I don't want to bring up, you know, horrible, tragic memories, but I know you've gone through a severe personal experience of your own near death situation a few years ago. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, how did that sort of change your, how did that change you, you know, as a professional and as an investor? Yeah. Well, it, it was, it was kind of this crazy thing that happened as I was leaving Kleiner where I ended up getting sepsis. Um, and you know, it, it was, scary and, and everything. Um, 
I got through it. And the important thing was that it happened to me at a time where it forced me to slow down and think about what I really wanted next. And, and I actually, like when I think about it, if it didn't happen, I probably would have rushed out and joined another firm that kind of looked like a Kleiner to go continue doing what I was already doing beforehand. But because I had this sort of stop everything moment in my life, um, I did just that. And, and I sort of changed my priorities for a little while. The most important thing was get my health back, which I did, by the way. And now I'm healthier than ever. And that's a whole nother passion that I have, which is all about, you know, being healthy, getting sleep, getting the right nutrients, getting exercise and body hacking. And so I could talk for hours on that. But it also got me to kind of ruthlessly prioritize. And, um, and that was where I kind of came to this realization that um, I love early stage. And I think that venture firms don't scale well. And that I think smaller firms that have you know, a handful of partners around the table, that is an ideal state. And so that to me ended up, it was the greatest gift in some senses, is it was a huge catalyst to go find that partner. Fortunately, I found Neil, which was awesome. And, and then we started Defy. But it also then kind of gave for me this notion of ruthless prioritization because venture is a, a tough industry and in that you at any one time there's 10 million things you should be doing that you're not doing um and and so it's hard and you can kind of spin your wheels doing a lot of things that don't necessarily result in moving you forward and um and so and i don't always have the right answer here and 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 you know sometimes i might be slower to respond to people than others but i think for me i'm trying to still figure out how to be scrappy and hustling and, and and a great, helpful venture person, but also balance that with being a well-rounded, great parent and partner. And, um, you know, and having a good reset like that, you know, midlife, I think, I think it's actually, in the end, you know, it was a really good thing because I feel like, um, you know, my priorities are much better balanced than they were when I was in my 30s. It's amazing. Well, glad that that uh you know that had a a good end result uh if not a very pleasant experience to go through sounds sounds terrible um so i'm gonna ask you a question that's called uh three data points um this is a hypothetical scenario this is not how investing works but um i'm gonna give you some information on a startup and you need to ask for three data points to make a decision um, I know that you have some consumer hardware experience, Eero and, and Dropcam and, and others. Um, so we're going to give you a situation with a consumer hard tech startup. Let's say that startup is doing a million and a half of ARR. Let's say it's growing 15% month over month. The LTV to CAC is four to one. But here again, the catch is you can only ask three questions for three specific data points to make your decision. What three questions do you ask? Yeah, so I'm laughing because I think, as I alluded to earlier, I mean, I think this is, we're not necessarily a a metrics-driven firm. And and the issue that I have on consumer hardware is that one and a half million in consumer hardware may not actually be that high of an N. So, like, you know, your customer acquisition costs, those could be all friends and family. Yeah, you (laughs) might have a great CAC because you've sold two units at, you know, $750,000 each. Um, So I love this question. I I do think it gets to the heart of, like, what are those questions you ask? But I I might not be answering it in the way that you were were intending. Because, again, I just, I don't know that there are three specific metrics per se, but there are 
a couple of questions that I always ask that I want to get to the heart of. And, um, and one, I think I alluded to a little bit earlier, which is the why you and why now? And so those are, those are two questions. And the, and the reason why I think those are so important is that no new, no idea is a new idea. They, you know, it's existed before. People have tried it before. The key is why is your team going to execute better than other teams have? And so really selling the specifics of, of why a team is going to win. And this is super important because it's not just the CEO, it's the team. And it's not just the technical prowess, but it's the ability to get the go-to-market right and all of these other things. And so there's a lot embedded in that why you question. Um, And then the other part of that, which I think I like even more, is the why now. And this question is so interesting to me because I've seen now that I've been in this industry for a while, how so many people have the right idea, but their timing is just wrong. Um, you know, and, and I laugh, especially having been a hardware person, you know, look at how many times people tried to do tablet computing, you know, before Apple finally got it right. Um, it was decades before, 80s, right? And look at it, you doing, you know, the Palm. The Palm exactly. before the iPhone, yeah. Right, right. So, I mean, so these ideas weren't new. It's just there was something that got unlocked about the timing. Um, Consumers were ready for it, or the software was in a different place. This part of the ecosystem was finally there. And so usually there is some kind of unlock that has happened that is making this opportunity um, doable today when it wasn't doable two years ago. And then there's the other part of that, which is why is today right versus a year from now or two years from now? And so, um, so that's another part of, um, you know, that question that I think is, is super, super interesting. Um, you know, and then let's see the third question here, what would it be? I mean, I think especially in hard tech, um, business model it is critical, right? So, you know, you, with your question here, you said ARR, first of all, which is unusual for consumer hard tech, right? Every, that's kind of the <laughs> ma- holy grail. Can we get ARR? I've trained my founders well. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing is like your cash cycle, right? So that with these companies, especially that are doing hardware, one of the places where they really get in trouble is that their cash cycle is dramatically messed up. Great point. And what I mean what I mean by that is that, you know, if you're paying for inventory two months before they can make a product that someone else is ordering later that then is shipped to them, you know, you can be putting cash out for a product that's not going to actually create any revenue for some period of time, which means you consume a lot of cash to grow. Now, you know, if you can buy a finished product at a higher price, but you're not using your venture dollars to do that, and you can get a consumer to prepay you for that or pay to build, um, and you can create a cash cycle that has you getting cash before you have to pay it out, then, you know, everything gets tipped upside down and your model gets a whole lot more interesting. So I guess that's a, a backwards way into getting at, you know, like really understanding the cash cycle of these consumer hard tech businesses is super important. Really great point, right? Um, especially if you're if you're doing hard tech, you're trying to do ARR and you don't get the annual prepay. You know, if you're not selling the product up front for, let's say, a hundred bucks and instead you're selling it for five to ten bucks a month, I mean, that puts you in a really tough working capital situation. Yep. But, you know, the venture investors are looking for the ARR. So, yeah, it's tricky. 
Uh, Trey, what resource uh, have you found really valuable that you'd recommend to listeners? You know, I'm sure you get a lot of advice on tactical, you know, this blog or that podcast. Um, but there are a couple of books that have been recommended to me over the years that now I recommend to a lot of CEOs and folks. And and there's there's two different ones. There's for folks who are dealing with like, gosh, I'm building my e-team and we're having issues. Um, there's a book that's been around for a long time, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, um, Leadership Fable. Um, you know, it's kind of written in a, in a story-like way, but it's just so good at illustrating how and where teams break down and how you build up a good and high-functioning executive team. And so I, I always recommend that book. Um, the other one that I found more recently that I think is phenomenal is the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. Um, uh, there's a trio of authors, and I know Diana Chapman is one of the authors on that book. Um, but you know, as I, again, as I'm focusing on how do I help CEOs kind of grow into their roles and be the best leaders they can be, you know, how do I also, how can I be the best coach I can be? And so really understanding what it means to be a great leader and what it means to be above the line. And, um, I I just think it's, it's a phenomenal book. And, and I do believe that when leaders are paying attention to, um, to how they lead and how they build their teams, it's an incredible strategic asset that you know doesn't necessarily get the focus that it should. Because um, when you can build those teams, they endure the ups and downs that startups are inevitably going to face w- in a much, much healthier way. Awesome. Uh, Trey, what do you know you need to get better at? Coaching. You know, that is my thing right now. I I do think that um, the best investors are the ones who are really good at helping CEOs maximize their potential. And, um, And so that is about being a better listener, being really good at asking the right questions, um, being good and being better about where to apply pressure and, and where to apply encouragement. Um, and so that is something that, um, you know, I aspire to be much, much better at. I care about it. Um, and, and it's one, I love working with great CEOs and when you can have a relationship where you feel like you're really kind of helping move the ball forward, that's, it's incredibly fulfilling. And so, so that's something I I'm spending a fair amount of time on myself. Somebody was just telling me about reboot and, you know, Jerry. Love those guys. Yeah. He's great. Yeah. Is he? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I haven't I haven't read the book, but uh, thinking about checking it out. And then uh, finally, Trey, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Yeah, sure. Well, um, you can uh, our our website is defy.vc. We're all up there. All of our emails are up there as well. My email is Trey T R A E at defy.vc. And um, you know, and, and importantly, um, we uh, want to be reachable and out there. So don't hesitate if you've got a startup you want to get in front of us. We'd love to hear more about it. Awesome. Well, we will certainly get some startups in front of you that we've invested in. Uh, hopefully, you're open to the Midwest. But Trey, this is a real pleasure. Really enjoyed the conversation, and thanks so much for sharing the time. Thank you for having me on. Really appreciate it. That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, 
and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.